I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking with my colleague, Kristen Neff. Kristen is a pioneer in the fields of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion almost 20 years ago. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters on the topic, she is the author of the book Self-Compassion and is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion. 
which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. Her newest work focuses on how to balance self-acceptance with the courage to make needed change. In June 2021, she released her newest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Welcome back to the podcast, Kristen. Oh, thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me back. It's so great to hear your voice and and connect with you over the airwaves. Where are you? Are you in Texas right now? I'm in Austin, Texas right now. Yes, you have such a distinctive voice. It's so comforting. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as Lily, who's recording us, can attest, I I have one of those things about not listening to my own voice, so... I have no um, idea what I sound like. <laughs> well, it reminds you know, I sat meditation retreats with you so many years ago and it, it brings me back. So for me, uh, it's yeah. a lovely, it's a lovely sound. <laughs> so since we last spoke on the podcast, so much has transpired in the world and and it feels like self-compassion is needed more than ever and is also talked about more than ever, which is great. So for anyone listening who isn't familiar with your work. How do you define self-compassion and how is it different from maybe self-care or self-esteem? Okay, so uh, self-compassion really quite simply is just compassion turned inward. So this would mean treating ourselves with the same kindness, support, care, concern when we're struggling in some way uh, that we naturally show to someone we cared about or a good friend. And so that's kind of the easy way to think about self-compassion, but there's actually three core components that go into self-compassion, which make it different from something like maybe self-esteem or or self-pity, for instance. First of all, mindfulness is actually built into self-compassion from my point of view. You need to be able to acknowledge your pain, to be present with it, not just resist it or avoid it or ignore it in order for you to care for yourself. So there's a level of kind of spaciousness around our pain that we need in order to be self-compassionate. And then also in addition to the kindness, and maybe what makes it a little different than self-esteem or self-pity actually, is other people, right? So compassion by definition, in Latin, con means with, passion means to suffer. There's an inherent connectedness in self-compassion. We recognize, this is the wisdom element, we recognize interdependence, we recognize interconnectedness, that we're we're all imperfect, we all lead imperfect lives, Um, you know, we shouldn't take things so personally because what we do is so connected to so many other things beyond our control. And uh, whereas, for instance, self-esteem is like being special and above average, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about feeling connected to others, it's feeling unique from others. Or self-pity is like feeling sorry for yourself, poor me. And so this is really what's so unique about self-compassion, the sense of connectedness that's part of this, this mindset. And it seems to be a lot healthier than, uh, certainly than self-pity, but also than self-esteem. That's very interesting. Like sometimes when I'm trying to describe the difference, uh-huh. I say self-esteem would be kind of a maybe a triumphant moment, like, I used the pandemic to learn Spanish, which I did not, but that's what I wanted to do. Or I just learned how to play tennis. And and that's good because maybe we don't think about those things as much as we think about our faults and our grievances and so on. Yes. But self-compassion comes in 
when we've blown it, you know, yes, or when yes. we've made a mistake, when we've fallen down. And uh, it's a whole other circumstance that, that calls for it. Yeah. And, and self-esteem, there's nothing wrong with self-esteem. It's good to have high self-esteem and to appreciate yourself and all of that. The problem is how do you get it? Especially in Western individualistic culture, you know, we only have self-esteem when we succeed. It deserts us when we fail. So it's kind of a fair weather friend where self-compassion provides more of an unconditional source of self-worth. And also this thing about having to, you know, stand out in a crowd to be better than others. It's not okay in American society anyway to be average. Well, even in cultures like Japan, people think they're more humble than average, right? So self-esteem is always, you know, feeling special in some way. And that can be a problem if it leads us to put others down, you know, and and it's kind of a a more intense self-focus. Self-compassion, even though the self is in there, you can just call it inner compassion. In other words, it's really not about our separate self. It's just about including ourselves in the circle of compassion. But it's a connected mindset state. That's really interesting because I think of, you know, all the things one might talk about in teaching meditation that self-compassion is one of the hardest things for people to understand and seems to just be layered with a lot of assumptions and and I would say misunderstandings. And I mean, almost always when I, uh, back when I would be in a room full of people teaching and you know, I would talk about something about self-compassion and somebody would raise their hands and say, well, that's just being lazy. You know, that's just like, that means like, oh yeah, I made a mistake. Who cares? I'll forgive myself and I can make another one in 10 seconds. It's all right. So all sense of standards and striving toward excellence, they just disappear if we're practicing self-compassion. So that's, that's the kind of thing I often would hear. Yeah. Well, and the good thing now is that there's so much research showing that that's false, right? So um, self-compassion, you, you still have high standards. The whole difference is well, what happens when you don't meet your standards? What happens when you fall short? So self-criticism, you know, you might shame yourself. You might, um, you know, feel horrible about falling short. And that might kind of motivate you to try harder next time. But, you know, let's face it, shame is not exactly a get-up-and-go mind state. You know, it kind of <laughs> Whereas self-compassion, it's like we, we also try again, not because we're unworthy if we fail, but just because we care. You know, we want to reach our goals. So it's the motivation of care as opposed to the motivation of fear. And the research is very clear that it's more effective and it's more sustainable over time. Actually, I'm curious where one might access that research is that on your website yes you have- if you're if you're curious you can go to my website which is at selfcompassion.org and you can go on the research tab and i have it organized by category so you can look under the self-compassion and motivation category and there's a lot of research studies you can read the original pdf articles so that's it- fantastic because i mean i need that resource and i i often quote you know in a general sort of way i say i'm not a scientist but my understanding yeah. Yes. is that performance studies will show that kind of a harsh punitive environment will spike your performance, but briefly, and then you crash. And right, that's right. the most effective way to make a change or learn something new or change a habit or make progress is actually self-compassion. But I don't have studies to cite, so that would be really handy. Yeah, there are. The other thing it does, which is so important, is it allows you to learn from failure, Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's a truism, but it's true that failure is our best teacher. 
And if when we fail, we just shame ourselves and criticize ourselves, well, then we aren't really, we don't have any mental space to actually say, okay, well, I failed. What can I learn from this? And self-compassion allows us to be more focused on how we can learn and grow from failure as opposed to just shaming ourselves for it. Well, that's also very interesting. In February uh, 2020, um, I was in California. I spent the month in California and I was in somebody's house teaching just this group of people. And there was a psychologist present in the room and I don't know exactly what it was I said, but what she said in response was the brain filled with shame cannot learn. Yes, exactly. And that just struck me as, you know, sometimes the things we undertake, like a course of shame, you know, yes. we think is going to improve us and help us. And yeah. it really blocks us from learning and from going on. It does. But that's so important. You know, I always emphasize to people, you know, don't beat yourself up for beating yourself up because it's mm-hmm. a part of you that's trying to help, right? We actually, some part of us thinks it's going to help. It's going to help us correct our behavior. It's going to help us be better people, be happier. So you might even say that the motivation underlying shame and self-criticism is care, but it's just very misplaced. And then so when we kind of see that, we, we can start going, being more direct and saying, well, okay, well, what does care look like in the context of motivation? Well, it looks like encouragement. It looks like support, which is actually more effective. So what do you think is the kind of blocking agent within shame that we solidify a sense of self as like that loser who did that thing? Or? Yes, a lot of that is that, that self-focus of well, both shame and self-criticism. They're, they're very self-focused stances. And ironically, self-compassion, even though it's got the word self in there, or inner compassion, you might say, has less of a self-focus. It's just saying, okay, I'm a human being. I made a mistake. Human beings make mistakes. What can I learn from this? You know, and we don't leave it there. We say, okay, well, how can I improve because I want to be healthy and well because I care about myself. And so, but, and also that it's physiological at some level too. I mean, we're, we're more used to being compassionate to others. And if you look at how criticism and compassion evolved, self-criticism taps into the threat defense system when we're threatened in some way and we go into fight, flight, or freeze. It comes on very habitually. Compassion evolved as a way of relating to others, to our offspring or close others in groups. And so usually, the, you know, w- when your friend fails or makes a mistake, you aren't personally threatened. <laughs> so yeah. it's easier for you to be compassionate and use the care system. But when you fail, you feel personally threatened. So the fight, flight, or freeze response comes up. So in a way, we're doing a hack <laughs> mm-hmm. and that we're using the system that's normally used to care for others and we're turning that inward toward ourselves. And it doesn't feel completely natural at first. We need to practice it and build a new habit. But the good news is it definitely can be done. So in the Buddhist tradition, as you know uh, very well, compassion is called one of the Brahma Vihara states. They're states that uh, we want to cultivate and grow, um, like loving kindness and so on. And it's a natural quality within us. And all of these states, like loving kindness or compassion and the others, have within that system what's called a near enemy and a far enemy. So the far enemy is obvious. You know, it's a state that's completely opposite. So maybe the state opposite of compassion would be cruelty, something like that. Right. The near enemy is a tricky thing sometimes to discover because 
it's very close on the surface to the state that we really do want to cultivate. But if we look more deeply, we see really it's very different. So would the near enemy of self-compassion be self-pity? Yes, and that's um, that's what Jack Cornfield says in his book. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's so true. Self pity is a near enemy. So you might say the thing that's missing is that sense of connectedness. Um, I would also say self indulgence is a near enemy, right? People mm-hmm. think it's self compassion is self indulgence, but are you really alleviating your suffering with self indulgence? Mm-hmm. You aren't. You're, you're giving yourself a break to the point of harming yourself, so that it's no longer self compassion. So a lot of these states that we confuse with self-compassion, like self-pity, like self-indulgence, like laziness, right? They they really aren't helping us. And by definition, alleviating our suffering means it's healthy and good for us. So, you know, people ask, can you have too much Mm self-compassion? Well, you can, I don't think so. You can have too much of its near enemies, but can you have too much health and well-being? I don't, you know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. When, when something's too much, it actually means it's a near enemy or something's out of balance. So let's talk about your new book. Okay. How did it come about? <laughs> you've been certainly at the forefront of self-compassion in your teaching and research for many years now. And I'm curious what drew you to focus on women for this project and how does gender come into it? Is it gender or gender identification that comes into it? Well, it's um, it's gender role socialization that comes into it, mm-hmm. right? And so some people you might identify as a female, but you were raised as a male. So your gender mm-hmm. socialization was one thing and your identification was another. Uh, and so I was actually interested in issues of gender and power inequality um, in my, in my uh, graduate school work. I actually did my dissertation in India. Uh, It was called Reasoning About Rights and Responsibilities in the Context of Indian Family Life. And Mm. it was kind of about um, in traditional cultures, how men have more rights relative to their wives and women have more duties. So I was really interested in that. And then I found your work and Jack's work and I found Insight Meditation. And I just got completely entranced by self-compassion and I did a postdoc with a woman looking at self-concept development, and I started, you know, going down the path of self-compassion. But it, it's always been an interest of mine. You know, I, I consider the fight against oppression for social justice, for equal rights, regardless of, you know, race or sex or ethnicity, re- really important to me. It's a, it's a core value of mine. And uh, what happened is I started to realize that um, people really misunderstood what compassion is. I mean, you've always talked about fierce compassion, right? The Mm -hmm. idea that sometimes compassion needs to be used to to say no, to draw boundaries, to fight against injustice, that, you know, the alleviation of suffering sometimes takes on a fierce form. And I realized, especially with self-compassion, people just weren't seeing that. They were only thinking of self-compassion in terms of its more gentle, accepting, tender side, which is there, it's important, but people weren't realizing that self-compassion is a powerful motivator of change. It's not just about self-acceptance. It's a powerful way to, um, you know, stand up for yourself, to draw boundaries or to meet your own needs. And so I was, I was always kind of aware of that dichotomy. And then um, Me Too hit and I actually had a, a personal experience I describe in the book of 
you know, having my own Me Too experience, someone I was very close to turned out to be a predator. And it was just, it was so traumatic. And, you know, Me Too, lots of thousands, millions of people around the world, women recounting similar experiences. And I started to see how for a lot of women, they had a hard time getting angry or speaking up mm-hmm. because of their gender role socialization, right? As women, we're taught we should be tender, but not fierce. People don't like it when we get angry or we get fierce or we're too powerful. And this this is a problem for a woman. By the way, it's also a problem for men that they aren't allowed to be tender. That really kind mm-hmm. of limits them mm-hmm. emotionally. Um, but for, with women, it limits our power. And I started to see how the balance between fierce and tender self-compassion is so key. We, we need both. Sometimes we need more of one or the other, but we need both. And the that gender role socialization, you know, the fact that we stuff people into boxes, regardless of whether you're cisgender or transgender or you know non-binary, anytime you stuff anyone into a box and say, this is the only way you're allowed to be, it, it represses these two sides of our nature and it, it harms us because we can't be our full, complete selves. And so I, I started to see that, uh, you know, Again, women need to be able to reclaim their fierceness. I think men need to be able to reclaim their tenderness. But because I could only write one book, I I aim my book at women. And I I just find it's a very useful, helpful way to talk about how women can do what they're good at, which is compassion, right? We're raised through gender Mm -hmm. socialization to be compassion experts. And how we can harness that, especially the energy that's used for those we love, like our mama bear energy, our fierce mama bear energy. We're allowed to have that as long as it's for our children. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, can we harness this to also help ourselves to, to um, claim balance? And, again, and I think it's not just about gender. It's also in the fight against racism, social inequality, global warming. Any social justice movement needs both fierceness and tenderness. One without the other is incomplete. Well, one of the um, associations I think people have with just the very word compassion, you know, is softness. And yes. It's like we talk in the political realm about soft power, and I don't even know what the opposite is, hard power, right. you know, and and something like communication, dialogue would be a soft power. And, yes. And just using that kind of terminology, I mean, it doesn't just evoke gentleness, it evokes weakness in a lot of ways or being secondary. Like even when I wrote Loving Kindness, which was my first book, which came out, you know, I guess like 25 years ago or something. Yeah. And, you know, began teaching Loving Kindness meditation uh, years before then, which was, you know, not that uh, well known in this country. And, and, uh, I would get a lot of comments, you know, from people like, oh, that's just like a feel good practice or, yes. or, or that's, you know, something sentimental or saccharine. It was only later looking back that I thought what they were really saying is that's like a girly practice. Yes, you know? it's true. I mean, that's partly why, you know, only 15% of any one of my audiences are going to be men because they yeah. think it's weak and that compassion is weak. Because it's a female thing, yeah, you know, and which is completely false. But that, so it's intentionally designed to counter that narrative. And I, I like the image of a fierce mama bear. I mean, you know, if you look at some of the Hindu goddesses, Durga or Kali, mm-hmm. right? Some of the 
fiercest energies are actually feminine energies. Now, in a way, I don't even like calling them feminine or masculine because I think that's part of the problem. And I like I like yin and yang because it's more gender neutral um, mm-hmm. to really talk about love is an incredibly powerful force. Look at look at Gandhi. Look at Martin Luther King. You know, some of the most effective social justice movements talked about the power of love. Love stands up. Love says no. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. These are self compassion movements that I see. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're very tough. They're very fierce. But if, you know, if we're too fierce and we, to the point where we're just about anger or aggression and we don't have our hearts open, then we're just adding to the problem, right? So we have to use this fierceness in the service of alleviating suffering. If it ever starts getting personal or the ego gets involved or it starts harming others, then it's no longer a form of compassion. And that's really the dividing line. When I wrote Real Change, which was my uh, most recent book, um, and I interviewed a lot of social change agents, yes, something I realized in talking to them was that a common thread was actually feeling a, a kind of self-love in a way, like I deserve to be treated better than this. Yes. And not just me, you know, but people like me, people who are also working in fast food joints, you know, for- yes poverty pay and, you know, uh, younger generation people like me in some way who are, who are being mistreated, you know, like we deserve better. And, and that's not an egotistical or arrogant statement. That's really about caring about yourself. And that's actually the fuel for people to be able to stand up. And I often talk about, you know, meeting people who were prominent in the striking fast food movement in New York, who were striking for $15 an hour minimum wage and the right to unionize. And and often, you know, their parents, their families would say, well, don't rock the boat. You know, don't don't do anything. You have almost nothing right now. You will have absolutely nothing if you stand up. And they just had to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. So the three components of self-compassion in their tender form, which is, you know, kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity, I say they manifest as loving, connected presence, right? The kindness feels very loving, uh, the common humanity helps us feel connected, and mindfulness makes us feel present. But in their fierce form, especially when we're fighting injustice or standing up for ourselves, it manifests as brave, empowered clarity, Right. Mm. The kindness gives us bravery when we really care about ourselves and our fellow, you know, people who are being oppressed or treated unjustly. And it really gives us incredible courage and bravery. The sense of common humanity, just like you said, it empowers us. There is strength in numbers. That's why, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, but matters, unions, social movements. We actually become empowered when we don't feel so alone. When we feel it's just us, we feel like we're helpless. But when we bond together with, you know, our group members to say, hey, you know, if you treat me unfairly, you're treating everyone unfairly, like Rosa Parks, you know, when she didn't give up her seat, she wasn't doing it just for herself. She was doing it, you know, for all her black, you know, community members as well. And so, you know, it's a real form of empowerment. And then mindfulness, you know, people sometimes get mindfulness wrong. They think it's just about acceptance. If you talk about what helps us be woke, so to speak, what helps us Mm -hmm. see clearly, what helps us call out injustice and be willing to speak it, that's mindfulness. 
we, we don't stick our head in the sand. We don't say, you know, oh, well, or it's not my problem or, you know, it's unconscious. Therefore, I don't have to be responsible for it. You know, mindfulness really gives us clarity of vision. And uh, so, yeah, so they, they all, they're both coming from the same place, but they can take very different forms. Compassion, you know, a lot of the, the images of compassion and Buddhist symbolism it has many, many arms with different instruments. Mm-hmm. How you how you alleviate suffering is just going to depend on what you need in the moment. And that sort of brings me to the subtitle of your book, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Yes. And it is so interesting because it's not commonly that people associate compassion or kindness as connected to empowerment or agency. Yes. Um but as you say, it, it really is. I mean, and, and again, I think for whether or not you have children, I think the metaphor of mama bear, you know, whether anytime you're protecting someone you love, we know that when we really love someone, we want their safety, you know, and we will be brave. And, you know, oftentimes we'll give our lives for someone we love because we care. And so it can be incredibly brave and powerful. And that's really what uh, I think the fear self-compassion is tapping into, this empowerment that comes from love. It's all about love. Martin Luther King knew that. He talked mm-hmm. about that, you know. But, but, but love without power is sentimental, but power without love is harsh and harmful. We need mm-hmm. both. There's something about compassion which um, I often try to describe, and it's not that easy. And, and the word I tend to use is poignancy. Because compassion also mm. opens us to seeing suffering. It does, yeah. And whether it's our own suffering or someone else's, and it's some juxtaposition of feeling that and acknowledging that, which is an immense thing to acknowledge. It is. And at the same time, realizing maybe I will do everything I can to try to make a difference, and I can't insist that the world, <sighs> you know, Go my way or something like that. And so there's a lot in there. And it is paradoxical. You know, it's the paradox of acceptance and change. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I try to understand it in terms of time, which very easily, you know, the mind really can't go there. But the present moment, we have no choice but to accept. Mm -hmm. Of course, the present is all there is. And yet we try to do everything I, we can so that, you know, we contribute to the unfolding of future moments in a better direction, but we can't control it. Um, but, you know, I think the confusion between acceptance and complacency, it, it, I think it is a confusion. As, as you know, when you practice, the more you accept things, you don't become complacent. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you use one, to, like for instance, if you let's say you use change, fighting for social justice to cover up or ignore the pain of injustice, that's a problem as well. We have to open to the pain. We have to accept the pain with the tenderness at the same time that, of course, we're going to do everything we can to change it. And we may or may not be able to. That's, that's maybe what that poignancy is you're talking mm-hmm. about. We don't have control. Yeah, it's just so interesting, you know, and and now I'm wondering if maybe sometimes the reluctance of people to go to compassion or consider it or or to um, see its powers because it does have us open to pain. 
And we think, I'd rather not, actually. It's so funny, Sharon. You know, my son, he's autistic. And um, Mm -hmm. most people might think, oh, he must be really self-compassionate. He was raised by the self-compassion lady, right? Yeah. Uh, For years and years, I would try to, you know, teach him to put his hands over his heart and care for himself. And he'd say, Mm -hmm. don't give me that self-compassion stuff, mommy. I don't want to feel the pain. Mm -hmm. I do not want to accept the pain. And it was so so moving because it was so honest. Yeah. You know, he didn't try to hide it. He didn't, most people wouldn't say that, but because of his autism in a way, it really gives, he's so honest. And he just said, you know, I don't want to accept the pain. And I was kind of thinking, okay, good luck with that one. You know, I wish I could take yeah. it away, but you know, I yeah. didn't say that. I just supported him. And now at age 19, he's really, he's had enough life experience where he's starting to see the wisdom of it and how when he fights the pain, it actually just makes it worse. But it's so natural. Of course, we don't want to accept the pain. Precisely. I just want to take a moment. I just want to take a moment and think about the passage of time. I cannot believe your son is nineteen years old. Yeah, can you believe that? Yeah, he's he's he's, he has a goatee and he drives on the freeway. He's doing great. But Uh yeah, he's. I'm sure he was like a little kid. (laughs) He was just just yesterday. He was a five year old. Yeah, no, he's he's doing great. But yeah. He's, he's very, uh, very insightful in his own way. You know, his, his brain works differently and in, in many ways that's a plus. Mm-hmm. He calls things like they are. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So yeah. <laughs> I hope I see you before, like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I know. Well, now that, now, now that the pandemic's over, I want to sit a retreat with you again. It's been yeah. way too long. So. It, it would be great. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about boundaries because I get asked that a lot and yes, people, it's part of the confusion around self-compassion, compassion for others yes. when you're at work and maybe you're being asked to do something that really is not your job and, and you're being asked to take on too much. And right. this might have something to do with conditioning as a woman as well, because oh, the yeah. stories that are coming up in my mind have to do with women, but I'm not sure it's at all limited to that, but but that's what's popping over my head um, or in relationships where it could be really anybody where um, having a sense of boundaries can be quite difficult. Yeah. So, and, and there is a gender difference. So my research shows, for instance, even though compassion is part of the feminine gender role, women have slightly less self-compassion than men do. And that's mainly because men feel more entitled to get their needs met, right? Women are so, to be self-sacrificing. We're valued for being givers and helpers. And so what happens for women in a way that doesn't quite happen for men, I mean, men do this as well, but it's not as strong, is that when women are asked to do something, one of the reasons it's hard to draw boundaries is because we're afraid people won't like us if we Mm -hmm. think no. And you know what, Sharon? They may not like us as much. (laughs) That's one of the things that's kind of a radical act because it's like, well, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to do what you say so that you'll like me. I'm going to like myself. I'm going to be authentic. If I I give, I'm going to do it because I want to, not because I want you to like me. And so my, my research also shows, I've actually looked at how people resolve conflicts in relationships when, when let's say something you want to do is conflicts with something your partner or your parent or your friend wants you to do. Self-compassionate people, they don't subordinate their needs. They don't just say yes. They don't, you know, 
give, give themselves up to the other person. But they also don't prioritize their own needs. They aren't like selfish. They don't say, well, my way or the highway. What they do is they compromise. And so if you have self-compassion, it doesn't mean, it's not like you have five units of compassion and if you go three to yourself, you'll have two left over, right? It's additive. And so there's always this, this tendency to try to find win-win situations, you know, ways to take into account everyone's wants and needs. Um, but, but absolutely drawing boundaries is an essential part of self-compassion, especially for women. You know, you have to say, again, well, maybe, you know, maybe you won't like it. And you can say it kindly. You don't have to be rude about it. But part of self-compassion is, I'm sorry, I, I would love to be able to help, but I can't. I need to meet my needs or, you know, mm -hmm. however you may, whatever you want to put it. But there, it's fearful. It, it's fearful, especially for a lot of women who are afraid people won't like them. Uh, and so the fierce self-compassion is the saying no. And the tender self-compassion is saying, I like you anyway. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay if people, you know, if you don't meet their needs and you say no. It gives you, what self-compassion really gives you is freedom. Freedom, you are so dependent on other people to like you or to think you're nice. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that it's the other extreme, that you don't care about other people. It's, it's all about balance. I often tell the story about a friend of mine who would describe herself, um, I think quite accurately, as the kind of person who had a terrible time ever saying no and... So she was often burdened, like with other people's work or whatever. And so she said one of the things she did one day in her meditation practice was she consciously brought up that kind of scenario where she'd be asked inappropriately to take something on and she would say yes. And she learned what happened in her body, like what visceral sensations, like that kind of panic yes, that would arise in her stomach that actually seemed to precede the cognitive understanding of, oh, they may not like me if I don't say yes. So right, yeah. she began to use that as her feedback system. Right. You know, whenever she was like at work and she would be asked that kind of question and she'd feel that very thing come up in her body, that was her signal to say, I'll have to get back to you on that. Right. And when she had a little space, she could say no. She couldn't say no right then, but yes. um, it was an interesting combo of self-compassion and mindfulness right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, you can't, from my point of view, mindfulness is kind of built into the system. You know, if you mm -hmm. don't have the mindfulness, you don't even know what you need, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Which is what she was doing. She was using mindfulness of the body to give her the space to ask, well, what is it that I need? Mm -hmm. And that's very beautiful that she was able to do that. Yeah, I have, I have practices that I developed for the book to try to help people engender that energy, you know, to draw boundaries, to, to, um, and again, it's, is bringing in the three components of self-compassion, bringing in the mindfulness. This is, you know, not, this not okay. I need to say no for myself. The kindness, which is sometimes being kind to myself means saying no to others. Um, and uh, the, the connectedness, remember that it's not about being selfish. It's just saying, okay, my needs count too. Sometimes I'll meet your needs, but right now I need to meet my own needs. Uh, and people are afraid it's imbalanced, but compassion it's really about interconnection, which means my needs and other people's needs count. They all count. Mm -hmm. It all counts. We just do the best we can with this process of balance. And I'm wondering um, what you would say about the role of self-compassion in bringing about a kind of perspective. Like, I think of this time, especially, 
uh, where, you know, some people are really emerging from more isolation and uh, in this time of COVID and we've had a really weird year. Yeah. Um, many of us, um, and certainly, you know, my having so many friends say in New York City, uh, I know a fair number of people who had a parent die from COVID or, you know, a sibling who worked in an emergency room or, or just a friend. And, um, and, you know, the intensity and the concentration of it may be different in different places. But if you've spent, as some people have, not everybody, but some people, a year more or less in isolation and mm. you're beginning to emerge, um, it's tough. I mean, I feel like I've spent the year that way, although I'm on Zoom many hours a day and I feel incredibly connected yeah. to people all over the world. But still, you know, I realize I'm kind of strange, you know, like somebody, um, I, I'm going back to New York City uh, sometime in June and uh, somebody just invited me to brunch and I thought, I don't know. It's been like <laughs> more than a year since, yeah. I've, you know, and, and I think we just need to give ourselves a break. It's very easy to, and many people do that. I hear that so much in the questions put to me, like, I don't know why I'm so strange, <laughs> you know, like, I yeah. don't know why I'm so nervous or uh, why am I anxious? That doesn't seem right. I should be better than this. I should be more mature than this. And and it's like, let's just think for a moment, you know, like, what have yeah. we been through? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think um, this is really where the, the gentleness can be very helpful. The patience, you know, we like to say, walk slowly, go farther, you know, just take baby steps, go at the mm -hmm. pace you feel safe and comfortable. Don't push yourself too hard. Right. Um, and again, so sometimes what we need is we don't need that fierceness. We don't need that encouragement. Maybe what we need is just to be still, mm -hmm. and, you know, wait till we feel ready and then go slowly. Um, and I do, I do think you, you started off your question with perspective. Yeah. I'm more and more, I'm, I'm thinking that one of the reasons self-compassion is so helpful is because it almost automatically gives you perspective. We're used to being compassionate to others. And to be compassionate for to ourselves, we kind of have to adopt perspective. We have to step outside of ourselves and see ourselves as if we were another almost. And that, that process actually, I think, gives us some perspective. You know, what would I say to a friend, right? What would I say to someone I cared about? And I think that does allow us to make wiser decisions than if we're just lost in it, you know, if we're fused with it, our sense of self is just carried away with the storyline of what's happening. It's very hard to have perspective. And I always like to learn what your research is revealing of late. So um, do you have current research happening? Um, I do have some current research happening. So the last one of the last papers I studied, I published, it was just last year, actually, uh, was about self-compassion for healthcare professionals. Mm. Yeah, we, we developed a self-compassion training program adapted from, we, we have this longer mindful self-compassion program, which is kind of like mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's eight weeks, two and a half hours, and it has meditation. It's pretty intensive. 
And um, someone from our local children's hospital came to me and said, would you help train up our healthcare professionals? But they don't have time to meditate. You can't give them homework. They're like stressed to the max. They barely have time to eat. And so I said, yeah, okay. So what we'll do <laughs> is we'll just have six one-hour sessions and we'll teach it at lunch. We'll give them pizza. They got to eat anyway, right? <laughs> so we developed this brief training where they did all the practicing on the job. So like for their mindfulness, they would just feel the, their feet on the floor as they walked from room to room. So stuff that was very integrated with their daily life. And uh, we just published research on it, which found that it increased self-compassion. It also increased self-compassion for others. It increased mindfulness. It increased uh, compassion satisfaction, which was the feeling of you know satisfaction they got from helping others. And really importantly, it reduced stress, it reduced depression, and it reduced burnout, which is what we are hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so by, again, bringing self-compassion to themselves as they were helping others on the job in the midst of their busy, stressful lives, it really seemed to make a difference. And, uh, and we, at first we were going to call it self-compassion for healthcare professionals, but we ended up naming it self-compassion for healthcare communities because what we found out was that it actually helped change the culture of the hospital. You know, the culture of hospitals are often so much about self-sacrifice and who can put in the most hours and sleep the least. And once the, we started teaching the program and we taught, taught several iterations, People started recognizing, helping each other be self-compassionate, like, you know, give yourself a break or put your hand on your heart or it's okay, everyone makes mistakes or, you know, it really changed the culture of how people thought about what it meant to be um, a good healthcare professional. So I'm really excited about that line of research. That's fantastic. And so um, would you say that pursuing that is also next for you in your work in general? Well, um, so I, I believe it or not, I'm actually um, going to pull back from some of the research at the university at the end of the year. And I'm going to be focused more on um, helping the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is our nonprofit, really mm-hmm. bring self-compassion to the world. So, for instance, we teach that program online for healthcare professionals. We have um, adaptations for uh, educators um, I've got a dissertation working student working on a self-compassion for athletes. It's really expanding. And so I, I'm probably going to focus a little bit more on spreading self-compassion in the world, which is which is really exciting. But the time has come. We're, we're following in the footsteps of mindfulness, I think. And, you know, mindfulness mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. exploded. And that's starting to happen with self-compassion. So I'll still do some research, but probably won't spend quite as much time on it. Other people can do it. There are, you know, thousands of self-compassion researchers out there, which is really exciting. It is exciting. And I think um, the more self-compassion there is out there, the better we are, because it does feel like, uh, you know, this is a time of a lot of crises and mental health crises. and Yeah, especially um, after the pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said that about teachers and educators because like I read those chats when I'm teaching on Zoom and I'm like an inveterate chat reader. And, Uh you know, I see those comments and teachers have been writing, you know, Mm. my kids can't learn remotely and I feel really despairing and I'm depressed and they're depressed. And and, uh, there's so much of that in so many lines of work. So. I mean, in um, many ways, what self-compassion is, it's almost like portable therapy. 
You know, mm-hmm. ho- hopefully what a good therapist does is help you have self-compassion, help you judge yourself less, help you understand yourself more, be more supportive. But then this is this is a way you can continue this outside of the therapy office. Or even if you never had a chance to do therapy, it's really a way of dealing productively with your difficult and sometimes debilitating emotions in a way that's healthier. So it's really relevant now. It's always relevant, but especially now. It's terrible. It's, it's been, I shouldn't joke, but the pandemic was good for um, Amazon and also the self-compassion business because, <laughs> you know, we just realize how important it is, almost especially when we don't have some of the resources we have of mm-hmm. our friends and our loved ones to help us. We always have ourselves, though. We always have ourselves. Yeah. And maybe I'll close with um, this quotation from the first chapter of your book and then ask you if you would lead us in a practice. So the quotation is, uh, we need women who are so strong they can be gentle, so fierce they can be compassionate, from Kavita Ramdas, the former head of the Global Fund for Women. So yes, uh, we need women, we need men, we need yeah. everybody, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we need everyone. Like, like I say, the men are harmed just as much from this um, gendering of fierceness and tenderness as women. On the other hand, men have also gotten a lot of power and resources because of it. Mm-hmm. But they, they need someone to help them find balance as well. Um, but it seems like there's something in the air now. It's woman's moment. You know, something yeah. is shifting. I start the book with there's something in the air. Every woman I talk to can feel it. It's something kind of transpersonal that's happening that's different than what happened with their grandmothers and our great-grandmothers. And so I hope that we, we are already seizing the moment, and I, I hope this book can make some small contribution to our uh, ability to do that, to change things for the better. Because, you know, the world needs the help of everyone, everyone. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. everyone. We need everyone. All voices yeah. um, help. So to close our conversation, yes. I would love for you to lead us in a meditation. Yes. Okay. I would love to. So uh, one of the ways I think of, Again, as I said, the, the, the fierceness and the tenderness is like yin and yang, which is more familiar to us. It's something talked about in Chinese philosophy, that there's this more gentle, nurturing yin energy in life, and there's the more powerful, action-oriented yang energy of life. And the great thing about this system is they can um, work with these energies as energies in our body and try to, trying to balance and integrate yin and yang in our body. And so I developed a meditation. Well, I didn't come up with it, but I focused on meditation for myself to help myself balance my yin and yang energy. And I could just combine it with the breath. And it's it's a way to try to intentionally invite balance and integration. Okay, so you may want to just close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes, but or at least cast your eyes downward. Maybe make your, I'm sure your feet are touching the floor so you feel grounded and stabilized. You're starting to notice your breathing. You don't have to breathe any special way. Just notice your in and out breath. And so what we're going to do first is we're going to invite in the more fierce, powerful, young energy. 
So first of all, I'd invite you to sit up straight. It's really important to embody strength and power. So let your back be straight. Don't be tense. Sit up tall. Make sure you're balanced. And start to focus on your in-breath. Right, and as you breathe in, imagine that you are breathing in fierce, young energy. And you might even imagine it's moving up your spine, filling your body with perhaps a bright white energy. Okay, so temporarily we'll let go of the in-breath and now start to focus on the out-breath. So letting your body relax a little bit. Again, don't slump, but just relaxing a little more. Start to focus on your out-breath, the relaxation of the out-breath. And as you breathe out, you might imagine that this gentle, nurturing yin energy is just flowing through you. You're letting go and letting be. You might also imagine a, a warm golden light flowing through you with each exhalation. Okay, now what we want to do is to invite these yin and yang energies to merge and integrate within us. So on the in-breath, we're bringing forth the yang, and on the out-breath, we're breathing out the yin. So yin and yang, fierceness and tenderness, we're really just allowing these two energetic forces to merge and integrate within our bodies. Right, so we're focusing on the in-breath and the out-breath, but feeling both yin and yang. And remember, we don't have to control it because in nature, yin and yang are, are balanced. So we're allowing nature 
to balance these yin and yang energies inside of our body with our breath, in and out. Okay, and then maybe one deep breath in, inhalation, and hold it for a moment, and then let it go, and letting go of the practice, and opening your eyes. And so you can do that basic principle. You can do it for 20 minutes, for half an hour, for five minutes. Uh, but, but I really found for me, the whole difference was inviting in these energies, like setting your intention for these energies to merge and integrate. And then they kind of do their own thing. <laughs> no, thank you so much. That was so lovely to do. And it's been wonderful just to, to talk to you and catch up with you. And thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's been, it's been my pleasure. And, and as always, Sharon, every time I talk to you, I always say this, but I just have so much gratitude to you. You're one of my most important teachers. I wouldn't be doing anything I'm doing if it weren't for you. So it's just such an honor to be able to, to share with you. Well, I've been you. using your work. <laughs> thank you. That, that's really an honor. Um, thank you for all your work in the world. And to learn more about Kristen's work, you can visit her website at www.selfcompassion.org. And her new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, is available wherever books are sold in hardcover, ebook and audiobook formats. And thank you to all who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.